I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Eve. Look, we did it. We, got we it did. This time. Yeah. We... No overlapping. <laughs> it's taken us three and a half years to to get to the point where we have one one opening where we don't overlap. We're professional podcasters with ADHD. It's great. <laughs> yeah. So what's new with you? Um, my entire house is turned upside down. And I don't mean like Mrs. Pickle Wiggle. I mean like I'm packing because I'm moving to Northern Virginia, D.C. area in early December. I'm moving in with straight friend. Those of you who know, know. She's buying a house and we're, we're going in on it together and we're going to do a whole renovation and, you know, host writing retreats and I'll like host readings and workshops and stuff. And I'm really excited about it. That is so exciting. I'm so happy for you. So if you're a writer in the Eastern Seaboard and you want to come and hang out and stay in our guest room for a week and let me cook for you while you work on something, let me know. And Eve is a great cook, so definitely uh, take them up on that. That's that's so exciting. I'm so glad. I'm relieved. I'm still job searching, but like having a direction is really nice. Yeah, that's great. And you have news. Yeah. Uh, so I'm also moving sometime in early 2022, um, but to Berlin, Germany. So that's that's a whole a whole thing that's happening. I'm so excited. I am too. I've heard really good things about Berlin. Everyone I know loves Berlin. So I've never been. So it's going to be like a whole kind of arrive and then have culture shock situation. But I've done that before. So I'll be fine. But yeah, that's soon I'm going to have to deal with immigration and stuff, which also... Um, I recently, so we're recording this in November. This will come up probably December or January. But I got, I had to get a new passport because I had top surgery and there's no way that I'm going to pass through customs um, with my <laughs> other passport. So I had to go do... They're going to uh, be like, are you sure you're an if you have a beard? Right, yeah. I'll have a beard and I don't have boobs. So like the scanner is just going to be really confused about itself. And I'm like, I will just changed my gender on my passport to M. So I paid $267 for the federal government to speedily send me a passport that will misgender me less wrongly. $267 not to be sexually harassed by the TSA. <laughs> right. So uh, so that's exciting. I'm. There is going to be a non-binary rollout sometime. The federal government says they're hoping 2022, but since I'm moving before that's even a thing, I'm like, I'm getting an M. So I will have collected all of the gender ID document Pokemon. Because <laughs> my birth certificate is F, my driver's license is X, and my passport's going to be M. So I don't know what you win when you get all the Pokemon, but I I should get You should be leveling Pokemon. up somehow. Yeah. Like <laughs> I've got all of them. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. So if anyone has moving tips for Kieran with customs and immigration and all that, let them know. And if you are in the D.C. area and you want to hang out, let me know. Yeah. And that's a lot of news. Well, our, our guest is very patiently waiting. <laughs> 
I'm so excited. Um, when I got an email from Jeff Chu last year asking me if he could use a blog post of mine for this book project, I I just sat at my desk and cried. I was just, it was a very wonderful, healing, full circle moment, but I'm going to let him introduce himself in this book to you. So welcome, Jeff. Hey, Eve. Hey, Kieran. Thank you so much for the honor of uh, being with you today. Happy I'm to so have glad. you. So glad you could be here. So I'm supposed to introduce myself? Um, yeah. Yeah. What do you What do you want people to know about you? I mean, we can we can do it, but it's it's a it's a long rundown, and I feel like you know yourself better than we do. <laughs> well, I'd like to think I know myself, but still working on that. I am a writer. I am a journalist by training. Uh, I am gay. I'm Chinese American. I live with my husband Tristan and our old deaf dog Fozzie in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I think one of the main reasons you're having me on today is because I finished uh, Rachel Held Evans's last book for adults, which is called Wholehearted Faith. And that came out in early November. Yeah. And I, I just... The fact that this exists feels like such a miracle to me. Um, so a lot of our our universe, I think a lot of our listeners have come out of fundamentalism after the Rachel Held Evans era, which is kind of weird to think about. And I feel like trying to introduce her and sum up what her work was is, is a really tall order. But for me in particular, she was a gentle, firm, theologically academic voice in the blogging world of deconstructing, before it was called deconstructing, of people leaving fundamentalism and trying to wrestle with like wanting to stay in the church, wanting to stay in their their Christian faith, but feeling like the ways the Bible was used was inhumane. And so finding her when I was newly wed and her book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood, was really fun and eye-opening. And I was reading her at the same time as I was reading like Jessica Valenti and Bell Hooks. So it was kind of a, a big mix happening at the same time. But what she gave me was she was someone who I could hand back to people who were coming out after me, who were not quite as willing to jump to the extremes of you know, what my, where my evolution was, was taking me people who wanted more measured, careful, slow change. And she offered that to them. And I think she made people feel very safe to question, but not like flee. I think one of Rachel's gifts was that she didn't try to force answers on anyone. Right. I've heard over and over from people, Rachel gave me permission. Rachel mm-hmm. gave me permission to think for myself Uh, to Mm -hmm. believe in God if I wanted to or not if I didn't. Uh, Rachel gave permission for a journey that otherwise didn't seem permissible. And that's an amazing thing for a writer to do. 
It's such a huge legacy. I think if you hadn't run into her work before, I, I think it's really important to emphasize that most of the ex-evangelical community as we know it today would not exist without Rachel Held Evans doing what she did. She kind of like held her foot in the door. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of conversations around tone policing and people being angry and bitter. And she never really was able to, um, no one was able to pin those accusations on her because of her, her posture. And so that allowed others like me to be a lot more angry (laughs) because I could point to someone who agreed with me on a lot of things who was not, I mean, I'm, I know she was, but the way she presented herself, her persona was so gentle and firm that I think it it allowed there to be more diversity of conversation. You know, I think she would acknowledge that one of the reasons she was able to present her anger the way she did was because of her privilege as a straight, white, young mom with kids who ticked a lot of the demographic boxes that church folks look for, right? Mm-hmm. But what she did was she used her presence, her body, her writing to say, but look, I agree with those folks. I agree with those folks who are angry in ways that don't seem acceptable to you. And in that way, I think she threw herself into the middle as a sort of mediator and a bridge and almost like a diplomat who could give mm-hmm. some of the rest of us credibility. Yes. And that's a a really self-sacrificial thing that she did because it ended up that her inbox filled up with emails calling her a Jezebel. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Favorite line, right? Yep. And that hurt her because she took them personally sometimes. But she still didn't let all the insults and all the condemnations divert her from what she felt was an important role. It was, it was really important. It still is really important. Like I, I cannot speak to how this book is going to impact our community and, and the conversations right now. I think you probably have a better picture of how it's been received so far. Um, And I do want to ask you about that, but even just like recently, some my mom was up here last weekend and I was telling you this before we started recording, like she starts talking about holiday plans and she just kind of ADHDs herself into a corner of like the things that are occurring to her as she's talking about it. And she's like, by the way, there's this one thing I want for Christmas and it's Rachel Held Evans has a new book out. <laughs> and I didn't know that she had, you know, had a book that wasn't published and I'm so excited to read it. And I was like, oh, you mean this book? like bring it downstairs. I was like, hold please. I'm going to run up and get it. And so she, she spent the afternoon thumbing through it and just like talking about how much she missed Rachel's presence. And it's really one of the reasons my mom was able to get out of the quiverful fundamentalist sovereign grace ministries hangover is because that Rachel was there. Like I could be just like, I don't have the spoon stuff explain these things to you here read this book and it would it would walk her through what I was experiencing and feeling in ways that I just didn't have the the energy or the words to and that was so powerful and so helpful did your mom know that you're in the book 
Mm-hmm. I told, and she didn't until I told her when I handed her the book. And I was like, by the way, look at chapter, what, six? <laughs> no, so she didn't know until I handed it to her. But I was just kind of like, but, yeah, that's that's it. And so she sat there and she read it, that chapter out loud to my brothers and me, which is very cute. That's adorable. Slightly awkward. Very awkward. Yeah. The 19-year-old the boys, like, they like they were 10 when we left. Like, so they don't really understand all of this context. And so they were just kind of rolling their eyes being like, okay, let's go blow the dogs outside. Mom's doing her thing. Like, Mom, if I wanted to read what Eve wrote, I would just go to their blog. Like it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was very sweet, but yeah. it's, it's that legacy that just like makes this project and the ex- existence. So wonderful to me that it's, it's there. And I'm going to tell you one other thing. And that is like my, my kind of last interaction with Rachel was a little fractious. Um, and I was kind of at this point where I was about to go into Peace Corps and disappear from the internet for two years. Cause I was going to be in central Asia and I just didn't, I wasn't going to be blogging. I wasn't going to be keeping up with stuff. I just was going to focus on my work. And, um, it was around that time when, there was this whole conversation about someone she was doing a conference with who had, uh, there were, there were rumors and then later evidence of him abusing his wife and everybody was kind of going back and forth about why would you do a conference with this person? And, and she stood her ground and I didn't like what she was, you know, the choice she was making. And I was just tired and I was fed up and I was just kind of like, I don't understand why you would do this. Um, and she had, she had her reasons and I, but it feels really, it feels really healing that this came back around full circle. Cause I had always wanted to follow up with her and like reconnect and like re you know, revisit our, our friendship outside of that. And I just never got a shot at it. And so when you emailed me, that's why I cried because it was like, felt like a, a peace offering. <laughs> And I want to be clear because what she left was about 12,000 words, right? Which is only 20% of a book and not even a very Mm -hmm. long book. And a lot of folks have asked, oh, what did Jeff write? What did Rachel write? Like almost, almost as if they want to be able to see what the real material is versus the stuff that I added in. They want to dissect it. (laughs) Right. And almost maybe value some parts of it more than others, which I get, right? Because folks want a direct connection with Rachel. So I have not talked about any of the specifics anywhere else. And I won't talk about them anywhere else, except to say this one thing that I think is important for you to know. Your story was in her version. That was one of the bits that she had already written. So you left a mark on her and you changed her in some ways. Well, and she changed me. Like I would not have the writing career that I have if I hadn't gotten that guest post. Like that got me like eyes who are still mentors. Like that got me connected to people who have, you know, encouraged my writing and, you know, wrote recommendation letters for my MFA, like things like that. It's like, it's, it's a, it's a direct line from there to here. So 
And it shows the complexity of human relationship, right? We're all messy. We're all so messy. Like you didn't like something she did and choices she made. And I'm sure if she had full access to your story, there would be things she would quibble with. Oh, absolutely. But she made room. And Mm -hmm. the fact that you showed up in her original manuscript says that despite however fractious you might think that interaction was, she valued you. And you mattered to her. So I'm glad I have the chance to say that to you. Thank you. It means a lot. We have other questions and I'm, I'm talking a lot over <laughs> here. And so if you want to jump in, but I do want to ask about the craft, you know, as a, as a writer, what was, what was this experience like of being handed 12,000 words? Uh, shitty and excruciating. <laughs> That's that seems right. That, yes, that seems about right. I would expect nothing less. And part of it, look, most writers I know are insecure. I am definitely not that confident as a writer. I don't think any of us are not insecure. So I'm constantly <laughs> second guessing and third guessing myself all the time. But then you have to layer onto it that it's so much more difficult when you're trying to channel the voice of someone so different from you, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a gay Chinese guy without kids and I'm reformed. Rachel was a straight white mom who grew up in non-denominational Bible churches and became an Episcopalian. I'm in Enneagram 6. She was a 3. We mm-hmm. were very different. She loved Twitter. I hate it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But we loved each other. And I think maybe that was one of the only redeeming things. My memory of her love, that was the thing that got me through. Someone asked me a a weird question a couple of weeks ago, whether I felt Rachel's presence with me and whether I ever sensed that she was hovering over my shoulder in like a physical way. And... Candidly, I felt that was a little ghoulish. I never felt her ghost. I don't even know what that would be like. (laughs) You're like, I'm not Catholic enough for that, thanks. (laughs) But here's the thing. I also come from a culture that does believe that our ancestors are always with us in some way. Right. Right. So how do I make sense of that? I had access to her hard drive. I had unwritten drafts of blog posts. I had some of her Christmas shopping lists. I had manuscripts of talks and sermons. I, like everybody else, had access to the books she's already published. And so I guess in those ways, Rachel was still with me and Rachel is still with us. Um, I did want to say one other thing about the process being excruciating And that has to do with the particularity of my place as a gay Chinese American person. Even in. Yeah, please tell me more. Tell me all about this. (laughs) No, even in progressive spaces, a voice like mine and a body like mine is often not welcome. And I feared that I would saddle Rachel, who was such a venerated figure to so many people, I feared that I would saddle her with the burdens that come with me being who I am. 
Because even in progressive spaces, many of us don't get to be fully embodied, multifaceted humans. <laughs> yep. Yep. There is this kind of conde uh, condescension that I encounter sometimes where folks might hold us up as mascots, right? Look at how well we're embracing them. Mm -hmm. Or they try to keep us in the boxes of our intersecting identities. Yeah. And I've really had to wrestle with what it means to be me in the context of a project that was never really about me and shouldn't be about me. Right. But it was powerful that her husband said, no, I want you. Mm -hmm. I want you in the specificity of you and all that you are, all that Rachel loved. I want you to do this. So I guess that's why I sort of had to say yes. How did you, how did you make peace with that in the process? Was there anything that you did that, I mean, ghostwriting is a, this is not quite ghostwriting. Yeah, my name's not it, so I don't get to be yeah. a full ghost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, but ghostwriting as something I have done is, a, is, you know, there's a sublimination of self. And it's it's hard to, like, you know, sh it's shake it that off afterward. I'm really thankful for my journalistic background because mm -hmm. I was able to put my journalist hat on a lot of the time and say, okay, I'm telling her story. I'm not telling my story. Right? That's a, that was relatively comfortable for me. And the other thing, I mean, those of your listeners who weren't Rachel fans or never knew her might feel like, wow, is this like a Rachel Held Evans fan club meeting? But I think... Yes. Sure. Yes, it is. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. we, can, we can say it is. <laughs> it was her love that got me through it. Because I wanted to honor my friend. I wanted to honor a person who, look, I didn't agree with her on everything, right? What friends agree with one another on every single little thing? We definitely had our disagreements, mm. all of which will remain private forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I wanted to honor my friend. And this was one thing I could do after receiving so much love from her. This was one thing I felt I could try to do to love her well. And I can't say a lot of things with certainty anymore, but I can say I did the best I could. Which is incredible. And we're just glad you did it. Thanks. How, how has this, um, I mean, I don't know what you're working on now in terms of your own writing, but do you feel like there's parts about this project that have stuck with you and changed how you approach your own work now? I don't know if it's anything that's necessarily different or new, but one of the things that I've really come back to throughout putting this book out into the world and starting to see how people receive it is realizing again the deep longing that still exists for healing theologies. And by okay. theologies, I don't even mean Christian theology necessarily. I mean a more generic sense of trying to make sense of the world, attempting to understand God if you still believe in God or the universe, if that's a, a more palatable concept. I'd love to believe that healing theology is actually a redundant term because shouldn't all theology be healing in some form? <laughs> but... 
You would think. <laughs> but you both know that they're not, right? Yeah. Shouldn't all our attempts to understand God or the universe or nature, shouldn't they be redemptive? But they're not. And we know this in our bodies and we know it in our spirits and we know it in our souls. And that really grieves me. And I think it grieved Rachel. And I think that sorrow inspired Rachel to seek a vision of life with God and life with one another that was healing and that was redemptive and that was truly good news because so many of us have been forced to live under versions of allegedly good news that actually weren't good news. And the outpouring of longing that I've seen after the publication of this book reminds me that much of the church and much of the world is still a place of trauma and discrimination and values that I would say are precisely the opposite of the goodness and liberation that Jesus embodied. And so what that means, that's a really long answer to your question, but for my work, if I can bring just a little more hope, a little more goodness, a little more love to people, a little bit of relief from their day, even if it's just through the caption on an Instagram post, because that's a form of writing too. Mm-hmm. I think that would be great. So what has the reception been like? It's been really phenomenal in a lot of ways. I've only seen one tweet where some random dude was like, yeah, glad she's in hell. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, buddy. (laughs) Thanks, dude. Uh, Take that to your therapist. All right. (laughs) But for the most part, it's just been gratitude for who Rachel was and who through her writing she still is. And that's been really heartening to see that through these stories and through these reflections that she offers, people can feel a little more hopeful because we definitely need hope right now. Yeah. (laughs) Did that response surprise you? Was there something you were expecting that didn't happen or did happen that was just basically what you you anticipated going in? So I said earlier that I'm an Enneagram 6, which means I am... You have thought through every every possible bad scenario. Yes. And I'm intimately acquainted with the full spectrum of fear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I had this recurring nightmare in the two years that I was working on this book that I would open the New York Times and there would be a review there. And I could only ever make out one line. And this is like the most obvious pathetic dream ever because it requires no interpretation at all. The only line that I could read in the review was, this does not live up to her previous work, and we know why. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I, I love when our subconscious <laughs> likes to beat us over the head with things. It's so rude. It's so rude. And it's so it's blunt force trauma, right? Yeah. Like, like thanks, over brain. And over and right. over. At least give me something to puzzle through. Right, And so I'd wake up in a cold sweat and then I'd have to keep writing, right? It was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. But honestly, people have been kind and generous and yeah, it's, it's been beautiful to see. Yeah. I'm grateful. Hmm. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that it's gone over well. And like, I just kind of want to hold for a moment 
how much that was for you to go through to be writing the book and to get it here. And like, I can almost imagine all of the weight that you must have felt in that process, trying to make sure that you got it right and you did justice. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to do that and to work through that because that is a whole lot of effort while also like grieving and trying to heal from like Rachel dying. Like that's, that was so much. And thank you for, for holding that and working through that and bringing this book out into, into the world because it is truly like, I didn't have, I wasn't close with Rachel and I, I didn't like do a lot of reading of her books, but she was someone that I could give to my in-laws when I was very angry. and was just like, look, here is someone. And that, that was huge, huge for me and huge for, huge for a lot of people. So just like, thank you for sitting with all of that and going through it because I know that's a huge, huge, difficult task and, and you did good. It's a massive act of generosity. (laughs) I appreciate that. I kind of want to ask maybe, I don't know if you'll feel comfortable answering this, so feel free to punt if not, but I'm curious what, you know, working on this in the last two years as, I mean, as like the white middle class has become, uh, I don't want to say woke because it's not the accurate use of that word, but like as the white middle class in the United States has had to face its ghosts of systemic racism. And as all of this has been happening and escalating what, what the experience of, of being in that environment and being in Grand Rapids is, is not as white as where I live, but, but being in the in the Midwest during an election and putting yourself in a white woman's brain space, yeah, for this writing project, what was this like? <laughs> well, my husband and I moved to Grand Rapids in January of 2020, and any sane person should question our mental health for moving to Michigan <laughs> in the middle of January. <laughs> Yeah, that's not fun. When we've been living in New York, we're a gay couple, right, moving to Grand Rapids, which has this reputation as a bastion of conservatism. But you're like, we're going to have a whole house. (laughs) For the price of a parking lot in Manhattan. Right, it's going to be great. (laughs) Who needs other people? We can have doors that close. Yeah, (laughs) great. We have a garage. We have a two-car garage, which is insane to me. Oh my God. Wow. Uh, I don't have to park on the street anymore and circle the block for 45 minutes, hoping that someone will leave. Heaven. (laughs) It's the small things. Look, here's what I'll say. We really like it. And we've been so surprised. And I think it's been humbling because it reminds me how easily I can stereotype an entire city. The block over from us, because we walk our dog constantly, 
we quickly realized after Fozzie joined us because he was a pandemic dog who we got from the shelter like so many other people. We're, we're just like cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. We started walking and walking and walking, right? Because we had nothing else to do during this pandemic. And, and dogs the- are the easiest way to meet pe- neighbors for right. sure. So during the lockdown, we realized the next block over from us, there's probably 20 houses and about half of them maybe have rainbow flags in front of them. And not even the old school ones. They've got the new ones with the triangle. Nice. And with like, so what's going on? And they're all street families. We were not expecting that in Grand Rapids. And then after the election, because my husband and I, we like to geek out on maps and data, we went online <laughs> and we looked at the precinct maps and we realized mm-hmm. that our neighborhood had gone for Biden 70 to 30. Hmm. Nice. And so we tell our friends in New York this, and they're like, what? <laughs> it's complicated, right? Well, and there's huge immigrant populations in, in that area, too, that are pretty liberal. It's, 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 not, it's not cut and dried. It really isn't. It's not. And, and so there are these pockets where we can feel pretty safe in a place where folks had told us we were not going to be able to find any sense of home. <laughs> and it's gratifying and it's humbling. And I think it's taught us to try our best to look for the good and the beauty. Um, we love our farmer's market, which is three blocks away. And even there, I found myself falling into the ridiculous trap of stereotyping the farmers, right? And there's this old guy that I would always buy things from on Saturdays because some of the hipster farms have their fancy branding and their paper design to everything and their cute name. And this guy who I call Farmer Bob, and I've learned his name is not really Bob, but he just looks like Bob, so he's always Farmer Bob. (laughs) (laughs) He had this ratty baseball cap on and a few containers of tomatoes and some cucumbers. And he would just scrawl the prices on cut up pieces of cardboard. And that was it. Amazing. And he had this dirty Subaru. And I'm like, who are you? But I would always want to buy things from him. And then I did what (laughs) normal stalkers do. I started Googling him to try to figure out who he was. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out. Yeah, not normal stalkers, journalists. 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 It turns out he's a retired middle school teacher and he started growing things just for his family with his wife. And then he started being really good at growing things and he started bringing them to the farmer's market. And then I started paying more attention and I saw that he was wearing a hat that said something about Jesus. And I was like, what's going on there? And it turned, and, and I was all ready to stereotype him, right? As your standard issue, Dutch reformed conservative Republican. And then I noticed one day he had his Black Lives Matter button on. And then uh-huh. he has a little UCC button that he's added that says, God is still speaking. <laughs> and I'm uh, like, okay, Farmer Bob, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I see you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a. I'll just, I had a similar experience. I live currently in the middle of nowhere, Southwest Virginia in the mountains, you know, this tiny little town is like, I don't know, 350 people or something. And, um, and my neighbors, there's an apartment building next to my house and there's like seven units and there's a 
trans woman and a lesbian couple and a gay man and me. And it's like great people. People in New York are like, yeah, the gay community doesn't exist outside of this urban areas. And I'm like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) They're everywhere. You just aren't you're not looking. It's so easy to erase the complexity of a community. Right. And it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum or the theological spectrum. We're all prone to it. We're all prone to otherizing an entire city or an Mm -hmm. entire class of human beings. Right. And honestly, moving to Grand Rapids really reminded me to step back and be a little more observant, which I should be anyway as a journalist. But yeah, it's been a it's a been a really humbling lesson. So good. I'm so glad that that was the experience. Oh, for sure, because it could have been much worse. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been so bad. Oh, Speaking beautiful. of car farming, Kieran wanted to ask. Yeah, so I I also did normal people stalking and went to your website and saw something about farminary. Yeah. What is a farminary? Yeah, so it is what it sounds like. Farm plus seminary equals farminary. Uh, I went back to grad school about five years ago now, and I went to Princeton Seminary, and it really was kind of a personal thing. I wanted to set aside time and space to study things that I'd never had a chance to study and sort out some of my complicated feelings about God and the church, because I've got a Mm -hmm. lot of scar tissue from my own upbringing, (laughs) from the experience of coming out in a very conservative family. I'm sure you all know nothing about that. Um, <laughs> nope, no, completely foreign. <laughs> and the farminary ended up being maybe the most healing physical space that I've ever been in because it's a 21-acre farm that doubles as a classroom. And instead of sitting staring at whiteboards and someone lecturing at you from a lectern, you're digging in the dirt and shoveling in the compost pile and planting seeds and harvesting flowers while you're talking about that week's reading. Hmm. And I never had any idea what being physically engaged like that, using my body, because I've really struggled with my body. Sometimes, some days I still hate my body, right? To be in a place where I was invited to see my body as good and useful and valuable while I was exercising my mind, because I know how to do that. That was an incredible gift. And I ended up becoming a farmhand, which is ridiculous because my parents were good old immigrants who worked super hard to get my sister and me into good colleges. And here I am in the fields working for $9 an hour. I think my mom wanted to cry when she came to visit. Aww. Like oh. all this for this, right? Like <laughs> all the Oof. sacrifices we made and now you're a farmhand. And I'm like, yes, and I'm living the dream. Uh, <laughs> it was so healing. And I think many of us are pretty disconnected from land. Yeah. One of the things that the farminary gave back to me was a real respect for soil and 
a real appreciation for how resilient the land is despite our best efforts to destroy it. <laughs> yes. 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 There is a story, a beautiful, beautiful story of life, death, and resurrection in the land that the land mm-hmm. is constantly telling. And you can see it in how nature operates. But once again, you have to be observant, right? You have to pay attention. And some of the best friends I'll ever have, I met at the farminary. And after we graduated, uh, the summer after we graduated, one of our professors gave us a grant to basically do a farm camp. And we realized there are a lot of folks in their 20s and 30s across this country, around the world, who have ended up where they are in life because of circumstance, but they feel Mm -hmm. stuck. They feel Mm -hmm. stuck with their jobs. They feel stuck with their identities. They feel stuck in their relationships. They feel stuck, uh, torn almost, between their calling and what they find themselves doing. And so we decided to create a five-day farm camp where at no cost at all to them, we would fly them to the farminary and we'd feed them and we'd work together and we would play together and just create space for them to be because that's what the farminary had been for us. It was truly one of the most magical experiences. And we had such a beautiful diversity of people uh, from a father of four who was exploring his own sexual orientation and trying to figure out some health issues to uh, someone who was in the process of transitioning to a writer who hadn't been able to pick up her pen in a long time and write anything to uh, folks who were in between jobs to folks who had struggled with infertility like every manner of change or struggle or tension that you could imagine was present in that group of 12 people. And we were able to give them the gift of space and time and good food and clean air. Uh, And I wish I could do that not just for 12 people, but for everyone (laughs) who wanted it. I have so many things I want to ask you about and say in response to this. Karen's like watching me try not to explode here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, first question. Are you carrying on this work in Grand Rapids at all? What are you, how are you bringing this into your your life now? So I have a little plot at the community garden and I try to grow things. I never realized how many bean plants you need to end up with (laughs) so many a pound of fried beans, right? I was pulling the hell out of my beans for hours and I was. I was so excited and I weighed them and I'm like, are you kidding? I feel like this is why farming, like little farming families used to have so many kids so they right. can make them do that work. Right, right, right. So you really start to appreciate where your food comes from when you have to grow it yourself, right? But my potatoes oh, yeah. did really well and I was able to send my husband home with potatoes for my in-laws and Yay. his brother and his sister. So that was great. Um, so th- th- on a small scale, I'm doing a little bit of what I would call amateur gardening, but my professors basically forced me to do a thesis at the farminary, which was a creative nonfiction project documenting my last year as a farmhand. And it's bittersweet because you don't get to control 
when things go wrong. On a <laughs> no, you do not. <laughs> we had a fox attack and we lost most of our chicks. We had one survivor. I don't know anything about that. The, several I mean, raccoons. What, several raccoons and a fox and a bald eagle later. I'm still at war with my local pests. So one survived and the farm director's kids named it Nugget. Oh, God. Oh. Under oh. the hypothesis that their dad would never slaughter a chicken named Nugget, which is correct, it turns out. <laughs> it was a worthy experiment. That's great. <laughs> That's I named, I named all of my chickens after kinds of dumplings, so I, I understand <laughs> the impulse. But one of the hardest things was my last year as a farmhand ended basically with Rachel dying. Right? Mm. And, and so I'm, now I'm trying to figure out how and whether to turn my thesis into a book. Because a thesis is a thesis. It's different. Even though they... Yeah, they, no, it's not the same thing at all. They set it up as a creative nonfiction project, but it's not ready. You can't, it's not a book. It's not a book yet. So I'm trying to think about whether there are enough relevant lessons from the farminary that I can put out there that will make sense to people, that will be helpful to people, and that will do what I want my writing to do. So that is the next thing that I'm going to turn to after uh, I'm done putting Rachel's book out into the world. And it's hard to make that move back to my own writing because yeah, I'll bet. I don't want anybody to open my book and be like, wait, <laughs> this sounds like Rachel's last book, right? So I definitely need to switch gears and find my own voice again, which is not easy. It's not easy at all. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Some things that you may not know that, that are why I'm trying not to explode on, on this, this segment is uh, I, so before I went into Peace Corps, I spent the fall and winter working on a pot farm in Northern California and just like went off the grid completely. And that was my, I like, that was my big break was I was like, I can't keep going back to church cause I'm having a panic attack every day. I do. I can't keep talking to my dad because the, presence of him in his in my life is giving me multiple migraines a week and so I and he was you know it was just so much being constantly triangulated with my siblings who were experiencing his abuse at home and so I just was like all right we're done here we're done there and I don't know what the fuck I'm doing with myself but I'm applying to Peace Corps and I'm gonna go quit my job and go work on this platform and go up the grid and just like reset and it was a very similar experience, I think, to what you're describing, just the, you know, being fully engaged with your body, being fully like, you know, present with your surroundings, having that that daily rhythm being forced upon you that is so different from what capitalist productivity is supposed to be like, you know, like one of the reasons I... I find myself, I don't know, struggling to to talk to people who haven't done farm life or lived like off of a garden plot. Again, Peace Corps re- experiences play into that too, because that's how that's how life in the village was as well. Is like, I am never going to be a vegan, 
it, because of my experience relating to the land and to life cycles. Death has a part in life and winter has a place and rest has a place and being fully embodied means surrendering to those cycles. And I find that a lot of my my peers are really coming to that realization after lockdown. Mm-hmm. It's forced them into being in touch with themselves and their bodies. We've had so many people uh, come out during the pandemic as queer or trans and just like accepting themselves in new ways because they've had to have that time slowed down and being present. And I don't know. I just, I could talk about this all day, but I, I'm really excited about your book and I'm really excited to hear you talking about those things because this is one of the things that I found that American evangelical theology was really lacking for me personally was like, there was no theology of the body. Yeah. Nothing made sense. The Catholics had a like coherent theology of the body. It was bigoted and awful, but it made sense. It worked. The evangelical theology of the body required you to not have one and to not inhabit one. And I'm a Taurus. <laughs> like, there's no way I'm not going to be like fully embodied. And I... You know, having be working on the farm and being divorced and having good sex and like f- eating good food and like being forced into like participating in nature's rhythms really was the biggest healing experience of my life from all of the the harm done by the church and my upbringing. It's wild that American evangelicalism which allegedly believes this weird Jesus story, right? (laughs) Yeah. That is so centered on a body. Right. It's wild that there isn't better incarnational theology because the entire story is premised on God taking the form of a human body. Yeah. This is why in college I was like, Wendell Berry is the most interesting theologian. (laughs) I didn't, no one else is really doing it for me. <laughs> Grandpa Wendell. <laughs> crotchety old fuck. <laughs> Bless him, but also, oh my goodness. Um, I'm really excited about that project. I would love to, to read it as it develops. That sounds really, really neat. I would definitely read that book. I hope there will someday be a book for you to read. I really do. And I think we are also, I don't know how much you feel okay with this, but leaning into the grief element of it, I think is probably really valuable. Everyone right now is really, we don't have like a a good process for grief. Our society sucks at mourning. Oh, it doesn't know how to. And, and we want grief to be this like one and done. It's like, you know, a ticketed experience and then you get off and you're done. Like, okay, we did the ride. It's good. But like, I, that's not how it works. And the more you're resistant to that, the more it's going to hurt you later. And I just, I think that the more there's a real appetite for understanding what grief is and how it works. 
I will probably be sad for the rest of my life that my friend died at 37. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, shit. But oh, shit. The shape of that grief is going to change. And I think some of the lessons I've learned on the farm, some of the lessons I've learned working on this book have made space for me to embrace that grief because it's part of my reality. Right. And also to recognize, no, I never wanted it. Yes, it has totally sucked. And it represents love and goodness Mm -hmm. that I've experienced. And it can birth something good now that I've been through it and am processing it. Right. It wasn't for nothing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't justify it by any means. It won't there's no, there's yeah, nothing is tidy. There's no there's no neat resolution. It's not a cute blog post. Right. Yeah. It's not an inspirational poster. Right. But it is my story. And I am trying to be grateful for it. <laughs> I relate to that. That that is a mood. <laughs> I feel it. Yeah, we should probably end on that note. Um my last question is when are you going to join the farmer's market? Oh, Lord. There is a lot of learning I would have to do before I would dare to call myself a farmer. (laughs) It's a different thing from being a gardener because nobody, including my husband and my dog, nobody is relying on my skills for survival. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's fair. I just feel like I would love to see you like have a small like zucchini stand at Grand Rapids. With potatoes and zucchini and be like, this is my specialty. Yes. This is my lane. I'm gonna stay in it. Wow, zucchini, you really picked a phallic one there. Thanks. Uh, it's the only plant I can grow. <laughs> zucchini and potatoes are very they could take a lot. <laughs> and and I grew a giant one by ignoring it most of the summer. So sure that a is a metaphor there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if our listeners want to find you, uh, where are you on the internet? So where can they read your stuff? My favorite social media platform, which is not saying much really, is Instagram. And I'm at by Jeff Chu, B-Y-J-E-F-F-C-H-U. And I also write a newsletter called Notes of a Make-Believe Farmer. And that is jeffchu.substack.com. I love it. Wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with us. This has been lovely. Thank you to both of you. And good luck with your moving because moving sucks. (laughs) Oh, my God. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. If anyone has any tips about how to move two cats to Germany, please tell me how that works that is my like one anxiety right now yeah i'm just gonna be like primal screaming on on twitter every day for the next three weeks it's fine yeah that's fine it'll work all right right. (laughs) take care thank you again thank you thank you you've been listening to the kitchen table cult podcast our music is from the track janet by the bend the heavens on their album stenazo Our producer is Dave the Great. Our podcast is made possible by Patreon donations from listeners like you. To support us and join our community on Slack, check out patreon.com slash kitchen table cult pod. Thanks for listening. 